0: This is the Music Therapy Chronicles Year in Review series for 2020. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. I hope you're having a wonderful day and a wonderful holiday season, no matter what that might look like. Um, It's likely a little untraditional this year, but I hope you are enjoying whatever you're doing to celebrate the holidays this season, and I hope you enjoy this mini-series I've put together to finish out what has been quite a year, (laughs) I think we can all agree. So this year in review series is designed to be exactly what it sounds like. Um, I'm the type of person who loves a good reflection period and then goal setting for the future. And that's not to say that we necessarily need to set big goals moving forward into 2021, I acknowledge that everyone is in a very different place in life right now. And for many of us, just getting to 2021 is an accomplishment. And, um, even for say the goal of giving yourself grace with whatever comes at you and how you handle that situation. Um, yeah, that's an accomplishment in itself. So, My vision for this mini-series is to obviously listen back to some clips of episodes from this past year, Um, and when I was listening back to them and putting clips together for this episode, it was really interesting to think back to when I had these conversations initially, um, what was going through my head then versus what's going through my head now, How my thinking has changed, how my understanding of things has changed, how my perspective has changed. And I took different things away from each episode than what was initially salient when I had the conversation the first time. So I hope that for you, listening back to these episodes provides a similar reflective experience where you notice how much you have grown. And perhaps you want to go back and listen to the entire episode. Um, or maybe you don't, maybe you're ready to move on to something else, but as far as goal setting, hopefully you will take away something new from these conversation clips and can think of a way to apply it in 2021. And again, it doesn't always have to be about goals. We're all getting through life right now, but if that's something you feel called to do, I hope this series helps you in, um, in doing that. So the episodes in this series are not presented in any particular order, um, they just kind of fell into place as I created this mini-series, so this particular episode features um, snippets from the conversations I had with Lori Kubachek, Annette Whitehead Plo, Alison Broderick, Julianne Hartley, Tony Boykle. Haley francis Can, Tony Miland-Santiago, and my Abe. So in between each snippet, you'll hear um, a little musical break. I invite you to pause this episode at that time and maybe do some reflection or maybe check out the show notes from that particular guest to dive deeper into what they're saying. The full length episodes from each of these guests will be linked in the show notes, so you can, of course, find them there and listen back to these episodes in their entirety. Maybe you'll find, like I did, you learned something different listening back to it the second time. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please consider leaving us a review so that more people can find this type of content. You can follow us on social media. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles on all the platforms and uh, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com oh and we have a newsletter so if you have not signed up for the newsletter please do that you will get an exclusive self-care episode with some downloads and you'll be the first to know about some exciting projects that i've been collaborating on all right i hope you enjoy this year interview 2020 mini series
1: it that's again one of those kind of core components of me Um, I I thought back when I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do I was like well I could teach but what if you taught teachers like wouldn't you have that much more of an impact if you actually taught people who were then going to go out and like spread it more so that again has kind of always been this thing in my head and how that translated to me was quickly saying yes to this opportunity through Berkeley to supervise students Um and I just oh you know, I've been doing that for 20 years now, which is pretty amazing. And what's amazing is I have, you know, four kind of advanced practicum students that just started. I just met them on Friday, and I'm still trying to find new ways to help students understand how to be flexible and creative and improvisatory um, in, you know, 10 weeks time for two hours. a a shot. So I'm, I'm always trying to find new innovative ways to, to help students to learn a concept that's really, really big and can be kind of scary. So I like trying to take a complicated idea and find all of the little tiny baby steps that you can kind of set someone up for success and they can see their growth as they go. So I've, I've just always loved that part of it.
0: What are some of your most successful techniques that you've developed? Mm.
1: Well, what i the idea that I had for this semester that was kind of this brand new idea that I've never done before, it's It's really wonderful to think about it because when I went back and listened to st- some of Stephanie's um, videos that she has posted on her her website, Music for Kiddos, I saw her using those components that she learned in her P5, um, both in the class and in practicum. I saw her using all of them in the, you know, her songs to kind of control large <laughs> masses of children at one time. And so the the thing that I had my students do this semester is to introduce the idea of doing a stop and doing a hold or a tremolo as a way to not just sing a song at somebody but to really create space to let the song have improvisational components to it so to do a stop both like catches their attention and to do a hold vocally and then to tremolo on the guitar is a way to again just do something spontaneous that catches their attention and then you can move on to more um, advanced or tricky cues, like slowing down the tempo, or you know, adding a rhythmic cue, or something like that. So, those are those are the two basic ones that I teach my students. And I was able to give them a new assignment this semester, which said, take a song that you love and know really well, and sing it once, like a chorus of it, straight through, just at me, and then try to add a stop and I like show them the technique of like muting the guitar and try to do a hold. And I t- tell them about holding vocally, blah, blah, blah. And then add three, each of those into your chorus of your song and see if you can surprise yourself. Don't always do it after a four measure phrase. Don't always, you know, do it at like the predictable times. And what was, and then I've had them record it and send it to uh, videotape it and send it to me. And then when they came for their first song workshop, on Friday they were like so much farther beyond than any of the other students that I had taught over the 20 years because I think I was able to find a really concrete task for them to do and it felt it felt like a win so I was like yay 20 years and I'm I'm still learning how to supervise
0: <laughs> yeah well good for you for first of all taking the initiative to continue to grow how right. you're educating. But also, that's great that you got that feedback early on, that this new idea is working. And right. that's a great example of clinical musicianship that is so simple once you know it, and once you've done it. But right. for an 18 year old, or even a 20 year old who's still in their undergrad,
1: it's like, right. oh
0: right, that's, that's part of what separates this from performance.
1: Exactly. That is the thing that really separated separates it from performance. So that's, it's a really great component to introduce.
0: Yeah. So can I, I want to pick your brain on Stephanie's comment about leading with your voice and
1: how you taught that. Can you break Mm -hmm. that down for us? Um, Yeah, absolutely. So I think I say this knowing that I am a vocal primary. So I'm, I, I acknowledge my bias here, but I also know that I can do a session without my guitar. I don't need my guitar. And I can still do all of the prompts and cues and take all of the risks and and lead and follow whether or not I have that instrument. And that's what a lot of people, a lot of my students are like, what, what do you mean, blah, blah, blah. So it's it's a, I think it's really important to be able to instill in students the importance of voice as primary instrument and guitar as support for it. And another reason why I say that is because oftentimes the guitar can actually get in the way of a student connecting with the patient if they're doing all these really cool licks and like all this, you know, these fancy inverted color chords and, and their focus is there instead of simply using music in its best form for that patient to connect with that patient. So if you, if you really look at using your voice as that primary point of connection and the guitar really supports it, I think you can just move along in your ability to connect with a patient in the moment.
0: Yeah. And it, it feels so counterintuitive thinking back to my undergraduate training because, um, at I went to Marywood University, and we needed four semesters of piano, two semesters of guitar. And we had a it was a vocal class. I'm not a primary vocalist, but it, we had a vocal class, but it wasn't geared specifically towards clinical vocals. Um, It was kind of just a little bit of vocal health in there and some singing of songs you should know kind of a thing. But so the Mm -hmm. training was so heavily proficiency on piano and guitar that it's great that your students have this clinical supervisor who's saying those are awesome skills to have and use them, but also remember that you are your biggest instrument as well. Right. And
1: when you don't have those skills, those proficiencies on the guitar or the piano, whatever it is, then it's, it is a detriment to you because your attention is where your hands are instead of out. So that definitely has to be like there. Um, but then to think about all of the ways that we can use our voice to be able to create this really beautiful, spontaneous, experience, um, for patients. And I've always loved Bobby McFerrin. Like I've been a fan of Bobby McFerrin since like the dawn of time. So the way he uses his, his voice as an instrument, the way he scats, the way he improvises, riffs on syllables, I use that a lot clinically as well to create these kind of clinical workout sections after you've done your A theme, then you move away from it into like a B section I'm using a lot of improvised sounds um, and and I think having that confidence and proficiency in my voice as a as an instrument allows me to do that, which then frees me up from having to do all of those things with the guitar.
0: yeah, yeah, totally. You're um, totally right about also. Being the profici- proficiency being important, so your brain mm-hmm. can focus on all the other things.
1: Yeah, right. And you can you can inspire melodic ideas with your harmonies that you choose, and if you just stick to one four five, you have to push harder to come up with cool melodic ideas when you're kind of in these improvised sections. So, again. It's hard for me sometimes to break it down into ways that I can really teach that because I just always had it. I never really had to think about developing my ability to use my voice. So I, again, love the challenge of working with students and like, okay, how can I help this student who does not, who is not a voice principal really use their voice in this um, intentional, authentic, creative, musical way? And it's, it's a challenge sometimes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Especially again, I'm not a vocalist, so right. all of that stuff to me was very unfamiliar. And right. even still, I'm still learning about other right. ways to use my voice and um, incorporate and I think that's, different sounds.
1: That's one of the interesting things about in, um, using a hold or a tremolo. Is it because you just you just take any part of a word that you're singing, like itsy bitsy spider and you just, you're just literally holding. So it doesn't demand a lot from you vocally, but you have to be thinking clinically to know to do that hold. So it's a good baby step in terms of how do you start developing skills on your ability to use your voice as a primary clinical instrument.
0: Yeah. Do you have any other specific examples of that you want to share?
1: Um, well, one of the things that we talk a lot about when we are looking at this B section part of our song or this clinical workout section is the idea of singing the sounds of the instruments that we're playing. So, if you know we're jamming on some twinkle, and then we go into the to the B section, which is now like now shake it, shake it, shake it, oh 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 oh, shake it, shake it, shake it, now bonk, and that's cueing them to use the shaker and hit the drum. And I might just say bonk and if they do it, great. And if they don't, I might try it again. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it now. Bonk Bonk. Okay, hit the drum, hit the drum. You know, and I might then add a verbal cue. Um or another classic cue is when you're on a xylophone and you do zling to see like do they if I just sing zling Will they put that together and kind of do a glissando on the xylophone? And it's amazing to see like most of the time they just get it because I was able to just cue it vocally. And really with the guitar, I would just stop because I'm not going to like slide up like that. That doesn't really, you don't need that. I just cue it with my voice. So so those are some of the um, first cues that we'll then start teaching our, advanced practicum students to get comfortable singing bonk or juling or la 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 da 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 and to just be able to play as a way to kind of cue that we're just kind of jamming together
0: yeah what great examples of um nonverbal communication as well
1: right yeah vocal but not verbal right exactly
0: yeah i love that i love that so much
2: This semester, I'm teaching two courses on cultural responsiveness and social justice in music therapy, which is really cool. Um, that's one of my more favorite classes to teach, and and so that's um, yeah. Th- those have like first you talk about like power and oppression and uh, privilege and and um, bias, and and then we move into looking at different. Um, uh, culture, cultures like cultures of heritage, cultures of religion, cultures of like sex and gender, or gender and sex and you know, sexual orientation and yeah, and cultures of ability and disability and then talking about then music therapy practices and you know, once you understand that, how we can make, uh, do more culturally responsive um, practices and bring social justice into our work Um around queer things I, I teach a, <laughs> I think it's one of my favorite classes to teach um, a, a class about uh, LGBTQ AI musicians actors uh, dancers and um, artists and, uh, and that's a, a class that's combined at Boston Conservatory of Music and, and Berkeley College of Music um, and so that's a uh, Yeah. Berkeley and Boston Conservatory is looking at, um, uh, queer, um, musicians, dancers, art, visual artists, and actors. And so that's a, that's a really cool course to do and looking at people over time and, um, and seeing just like this, like, you know, back in history, there's just like a, you know, we just have a few people, you know, that we you know, suspect maybe they were queer or maybe they were openly queer, but like, you know, there's not, a, there's just a few people here and there. And then as we get more into more modern times, there's more and more and more people. And it's just such a huge explosion, especially over the last five years. And so that's, that's a really fun class to teach. Yeah.
0: So, um, between those two or, and your research and your culmination of knowledge, do you have any like really practical advice or tools for, um, professionals in the field every day, uh, what's, um, how can we keep these things in mind? How can we maybe work through some of our own biases or anything like that? Uh,
2: yeah. So, yeah, I think, so cultural responsive practices really, um, have three different parts and, um, the part that's really fun is learning about other cultures and, you know, we can do, we do that often at conferences where we have, you know, um, presenting on different cultures and you know or going and taking a class on you know west african drumming or something you know that's super fun and those are really important things to do the part that isn't so fun is like the self-exploration and it's a reflexive process that happens has to happen throughout our lives and have to be kind of brutally honest with ourselves over and over and it's not fun um it's (laughs) yeah it's uh you know learning it's a process of learning about, uh, you know, the ways that you've not maybe done the best job with people and maybe times that you're racist or homophobic or, or sexist or ableist ear, you know, and, um, and the, yeah, and that's really, we're all like music therapists are really, really nice, decent people who mean well in the world and want to do good things. And it's really hard to, um, to have that narrative about ourselves and then to see that oh i made that i made that big mistake you know um you know, and, and I'm, I'm still constantly being confronted with the mistakes that i make um, yeah i realized uh, recently i thought i was speaking more from my trans voice but i but i realized that people are seeing me always as speaking from my white place and uh and my white privilege and And I have to, you know, and realizing that I, you know, I wield that white privilege very casually and carelessly at times and that I need to, uh, need to, uh, be much more aware of my privileges. Um, and I also know that I take that, that white privilege and use it to help to amplify like the queer voice, uh, which is, I guess doing it in a good way, but I don't, would never want to do that in a way to, um, drown out other voices that are that are equally or more important to hear and so yeah so we that's so that's that part of like looking at ourselves over and over to make sure that we are doing our best and then being open to uh feedback from others when they tell us that we didn't do our best and and taking that as a time that i would much rather face that embarrassment and um in that pain of of not living to the ideal that I have of myself and, um, you know, and then to be able to make changes, um, then to uh, continue to harm others by my, you know, by like the internalized racism that I've, or ableism or whatever that has just, you know, is so pervasive in our communities that we are within these systems and we can't like it's, we can't fully break free of them. We can continue to work to to limit them as much as we can. And then the final part is then you know taking you know enacting this in our in our sessions and like doing things like changing our assessment form so uh, so it's not in the gender binary system or um, and changing our language you know for think about queer things like to not always say she or he but to move into using words like they or leaving open-ended questions instead of saying, do you have a girlfriend? Are you seeing someone, you know, like and give like people that sort of space to be themselves. Um, And, uh, and yeah. And, uh, yeah. And to think about like what instruments we're using and what scales we're using and what do, you know, are we really functioning from the Western European, um, you know, canon of music and music scales and music instruments and are we pushing our our culture on other people you know or or are we creating space where they can bring in their own cultural uh, thing norms and music you know and um and also to be aware of how we're interpreting what's happening Mm -hmm.
0: Most of us who are making this transition now have worked with our clients in person for some period of time and now are Mm -hmm. transitioning and figuring that out. So what do you think is one of the biggest differences between meeting someone in person and transitioning to being virtual to meeting them virtually and working with them virtually?
3: I think intakes, I would say. Like, I feel like I have a whole lot less information when I walk into an intake with three rivers, whereas in Cadence, I like to have a lot better understanding of what I'm walking into Um, because I, you know, uh, I don't know. I just feel like that initial phone call, I get a lot more for in cadence. I have a lot more questions. Whereas with my face to face, I tend to walk in pretty blind to my, <laughs> my new, uh, client assessments. So, um, yeah, I, I would say that's a big one, but, but to be honest, I don't, I don't really know that it changes much. You still have to focus on rapport at first. You still do all the same things. You know, I ask all the same questions I don't know. Yeah. I think you just have to feel it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just its own animal entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's hard to sit here and be like, oh, how is it different? Because to be honest, I haven't really thought about it yeah. before this like past three weeks, <laughs> you know, it just kind of is, you know, uh, 95% of how I practice looks the same. I just utilizing I'm just utilizing a different resource, right? So, I'm still the same therapist in terms of my my approaches and my interventions. I just shift them a little bit to accommodate a computer in front of me, you know. So, and I think that's like and that's what Anton, my business partner says. He's like it telemedicine doesn't change anything about who you are as a therapist all it changes is how you're utilizing um technology and so you know you you don't have to lose your identity to accomplish this you're you're still the same person and you still have all the same training so so
4: that's just, I only bring that up only to mention because I really thought that I wasn't still working on that. And that's possible that like that impact from my childhood also affected my health. We know this, right? Like there's a lot of studies done that, um, negative childhood experiences, you know, traumatic childhood experiences like this can lead to lives of chronic illness later on because of uh, the dysregulation it can cause throughout our body. Um, but I think, you know, for all music therapists, for anyone listening to this, it's just so important to remember that we come to all of these situations with just a lifetime of history and responses. And um, it's always so good to just be aware of how we're responding to things internally and emotionally, because like, there are also maybe red flags that we still have work to do. Yeah.
0: Have you read The Body Keeps the Score?
4: I haven't. A million people have told me to read it, and I need to read it. It's just one of those things like I I I know I need to read. Um have you read it?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I read it um in my internship because I was working at the state hospital. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I I listened to most of it via audiobook and a lot of times had to stop and process what it was referring to and then get back on with, you know, learning in my life uh because mm-hmm. it is it is amazing how Things are stored in the body and the research around that. Um, Right. And then you can get into like epigenetics and all that Oh, I
4: love epigenetics. (laughs) So my other training, I don't, I don't, I never talk about this really in music therapy. Is are
0: you going to say like nutrition? Yeah. 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 I was wondering how that informs your music therapy practice. So tell us.
4: Oh, totally. So I remember being really frustrated at one point. I had a lot of young children with like attention needs coming in and behavioral needs coming in. Mm Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was doing everything I could as a music therapist, but like their parents were sending them into my studio with like Cheetos and Oreos and all these things. And I just felt like you can only do so much, but if a child does not have the tools to rewire their brain, that they don't have the tools to rewire their brain. And like, there are chemical tools that need to be present in order for children to rewire their brains or, you know, or to even develop. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing a year-long nutritional therapy practitioner's course, which I highly recommend for anyone interested in nutrition. It's not a master's or anything in nutrition, but it was just like the most intensive training I'd ever done in a year's period, just learning about all the different body systems and all the chemicals involved and how, you know, the whole nine yards, the, how the hormones work in our body and how food can be affecting that, how inflammation can be affecting that. So I definitely changed my perspective from, you know, what about my intervention is wrong here to realizing that there was so much more going on. I needed to take into context a child's hormones at the time or their inflammation levels, you know, beyond also just their trauma history, right? Like let's look at like what nutrition has this child not been getting their whole life. Like they're probably severely vitamin D deficient or, you know, there's all these different things. And so that just made it a lot easier because it helped me change my perspective from just music therapy intervention based to realizing, like, this is a whole body um, that I'm not necessarily going to be the one fixing or anything like that. But it kept me in, kept me better, much better informed. And I also was able to advise to parents, like, about maybe tests or diagnoses to ask their doctors about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I could say, hey, you haven't had a lead test yet, I really recommend a lead test given these set of symptoms. Um, but also being very careful about like my scope of practice yeah. around all of it, but, um, definitely. Yeah. I, any sort of more training you can do, right? Like we all know music therapy or not music therapy, like the more training we do, just the, the more open our perspective becomes for
0: sure. Well, and we we talk a lot about like a humanistic approach or a holistic approach, but that obviously includes all the variables not included in our sessions. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And, you know, it was great because I also had people coming in who like they had really bad anxiety or they had really bad depression, but they were drinking three or four Mountain Dews in a day. Yeah. (laughs) And because I had the nutritional therapy practitioner, it was within my scope of practice to also talk to them about sugar and like the way sugar can be affecting depression or anxiety and all those things and start helping them come up with action plans to make healthier food choices and so slowly I would see these people who are drinking Mountain Dew start to drink kombuchas there
0: you go there you (laughs) go
4: I guess I made progress it's good
0: for the microbiome yeah have you read um Brain Maker or any of Dr. Perlmutter's work
4: no I've never heard of that actually
0: well, I will link them in the show notes. Yeah, you should. And I can, Showing I notes. can send them to you. Yeah, Doctor Perlmutter, he has some, some good stuff.
5: I really struggle with the idea of like generalizability because it's like. I'm not sure a, how much control over it we have,
4: mm.
5: and b like, I don't know. It gets into like my core ideas of music therapy, where like my goal in music therapy is to provide someone with an experience of themselves yeah. in the music, and that experience allows them to understand themselves or be in relationship with themselves or with another person in a new way. So, like, generalizability, I'm kind of like, eh, Um, I don't know about that because a lot of my work focuses on, like, the core capacities of regulating and relating to other people through relationships. So I'm like, that's, they have the capacity to do that with me, but, like, that looks different for every person and that looks different for every relationship with every person and I'm not sure that, like, the skill set that would be needed In each of those instances would generalize because like, what is generalization? Like, yeah, my client can ask for water or ask me for an instrument, but does that mean they know how to ask for things in their daily life? Or am I focusing on um, helping the client learn that other people can help them and that they can be in relationship with another person who can provide for their needs as well?
0: All right, so let's shift gears so this is this is funny because you said you have one kiddo on your caseload yes. and you recently released a children's book yes so <laughs> explain that
6: that's intriguing yeah I know so I've had this idea this seed in my head for quite some time um and throughout my university degree I could have sworn to you that I was only going to focus on kids, <laughs> so that was my that was my focus when I was in university. I was like, I've been brought up by teachers. Um, I have a lot of experience working with young children, um, especially young children with uh, responsive behaviors and and um, uh, learning challenges. This is where I want to take my career going forward. I know that there's um, space for me when I, whenever I make it back to Bermuda to practice, this is what I want to do. So um, keeping that in mind, <laughs> I've had this idea um, about this book in my head for quite some time. Um, and it kind of shifted when I uh, started to focus on long- long-term care and I became interested in this intergenerational, um, aspect of of connection through music therapy and so um i decided to make the book set in long-term care settings so it's called mandy's mom the music therapist um and i'm i was really excited about it it, it released um early march so right in time for music therapy month um and we've had such great responses so far to the book but um, yeah, it's a children's book, (laughs) but the setting is long-term care and it's about a mom who's a music therapist um, and she brings her daughter to work and her daughter learns all about what she does in in music therapy um, in the long-term care setting. And she comes to some conclusions on her own about what she feels um, is special about the profession of music therapy and shares them
0: with her class at the end. Beautiful. So I guess, what was your vision before you had this intergenerational aspect? Like what, how has it kind of morphed?
6: Yeah. So I think that it was originally going to be set in like a school setting mm-hmm. or, um, or it was going to, to somehow um, be um a representation of more than just one population setting, um, but I felt that I didn't want to to release the book and it have too much information. Yeah. Um, I think there's room for expansion after this. Who knows? Um, I don't know <laughs> what the future will hold for that, but um, I thought that it was important for me to focus on one population and. I still wanted to include um, both generations. So I, I needed to um, incorporate that in some way still. And and I f- it felt true to me. But before it was going to be set in, in um, maybe a school setting, maybe a hospital setting. Um, but it was primarily going to be talking about music therapists working with children. Um, or... Exploring different population settings, so I um I hadn't really flushed the full thing out yet, but this I came to this uh point where this felt right, where I could incorporate um you know children learning and even in the illustrations in in the classroom settings I want it to be as diverse as possible. Um, so that um, many people can look at this book and and kind of see a representation of themselves in some way. Um, and I just wanted it to be a way for us to open discussion about what music therapy is. And I felt that this was the best way to do that right now.
0: Yeah.
6: <laughs> um, I mean, there's so many ways that I could have approached it, right? Music mm-hmm. therapy is such a... Um, an open book of many endless possibilities. And um, maybe that's been the challenge so far um, and why I haven't seen anything like this um, hit the shelves uh, previously other than, you know, really heavy and dense information, um, music therapy resources. But this, um, you know, I really wanted to strip it down to, to what is music therapy, what, are we trying to accomplish in music therapy? Why is it important for um, us to be distinguished from music teachers or music performers? And I felt that this was the best way to do that. If I had focused on um, a school setting, it kind of, it might've, uh, the lines might've been blurred a little bit there. But I think this sets the scene so that if I were to go on and expand upon this, that it would be easier for people to understand the differences between a music therapist, a music teacher, a music performer. Um, yeah, so I don't know if any of that made sense. I was just rambling, it but it, it, <laughs> it um, yeah, that's, that's the whole thought process behind it. It was, a, it was a long journey to get to where it is now.
0: Yeah. Well, and you the intergenerational aspect of it makes it so accessible mm-hmm. to so many people because um, everyone has a grandmother or a great aunt or uncle or what have you. Um,
6: yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's what I've been um, kind of using um, in many of the presentations that I've been doing um, so far, is, is calling it. A first step toward accessible advocacy um, mm-hmm. in our field, um, and I'm really passionate about creating more resources like that that are accessible for, um, you know, just our general public to understand more about what it is that we do and and be able to um, have some of their questions answered before we're met on the elevator and (laughs) we don't really have time to explain um, every part of what we do. Uh, So (laughs) so it's something accessible for, for them to have.
7: I would say, be curious. Never assume. Be curious, never assume. What do I mean by this? We we talked about this a little bit earlier. Be a student of your of your patient or your client. So never assume that because they speak Spanish, they're going to like a particular song. Hmm. That is if that is if I was a music therapist in Puerto Rico and I had an English speaking patient and I was like, oh, they're English speaking. I'm going to play Somewhere Over the Rainbow because that's the only English song that I have in my notebook, you know? And maybe this is a person that likes classic rock or they like gospel or any other genre, right? So we cannot be boxing in um, clients based on their language and then just have like that one song and just say, okay, so this is gonna be appropriate. The majority of of the Spanish speaking patients, they'll see that you did an effort into pl- playing something in Spanish. That will be appreciated. But I feel that now, as we're entering into the 21st century music therapy, we need to level up as music therapists, right? So when I say be curious and don't never assume, is to always ask them, you know, que música le gusta? What music do you like? Que música le gusta? And then Maybe bring your iPad or, 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 or point at their phone and say, Que musica le gusta? Show me. Enseñeme. Right? Que musica le gusta? And, and then just listen with them. Because I have my issues here in Houston. Houston is a melting pot. And we have patients from all over the world. And there's a lot of sessions that I have because I, I don't speak Arabic or I don't speak Tagalog or I don't speak Vietnamese. And so I would have to do all of these nonverbal gestures right, Um, and connect with them that way. It's okay if the music is not happening live at the beginning Mm -hmm. because you're doing your assessment. You're trying to figure things out. So be curious and never assume. Number four, this is going to be a challenge for you guys. I challenge you in the next seven to 14 days, learn five new Spanish songs. I want you to add that to your repertoire. I want to push you because I know that you guys are awesome and you want to do the best for your clients. I want to push you I want to urge you and challenge you to learn five new Spanish songs. And not only five new Spanish songs, I want you to learn learn five new songs that are very different. So if you already have Cielito Lindo, because I know that you have Cielito Lindo in your book most likely, (laughs) Uh, learn a pop song and learn a rock song, and learn a Spanish ballad, and learn uh, a kid tune, a children's song, right? And so now you have that in your arsenal that, okay, so maybe the person that you're gonna see uh, doesn't like those particular songs, but at least you're not stuck with one song, right? Now you have a variety and you can show that there's a menu going on that you're trying to adapt it to what they like. And then from there, you can say, okay, so now I need to learn all of these other songs. If you want a really good resource, a really good resource for what songs to learn, the Latin America Music Therapy Network, which I am a part of, we have a really cool Facebook group that is called Music in Spanish, Resources for Music Therapists. And it's totally free. Music in Spanish, resources for music therapists. There you can find a bunch of different songs. If you have a question, you can just put your question right there and there's going to be an answer. Uh, So if you have any question musically, that's a great platform to put it in. Because there's people from all over Latin America in that group. And we really want to help you succeed. So I would say that would be number four. And then my my last tip for you for today google translate (laughs) is your best friend now let me put an asterisk i know google translate is not perfect because i use it all the time i know it's not perfect but it is something it is something and google translate right now has this really cool feature that you put English and Spanish and you put it in like a conversation mode and the microphone turns on and you speak English to the microphone and then Google Translate translated in Spanish and then your client talks in Spanish and then Google Translate speaks speaks it back to you in English. So you can actually hold a conversation with your client or your patients uh, through Google Translate. How cool. Yeah, it is, it is super, super cool, you know, and so I know that if you work in a place where they have translation services, and this is something that I that I'm going to talk about later, uh, is le- learning how to deal with the situation of having a translator in the room. Mm-hmm. Because you, we're not re- building the relationship with the translator, we're building yeah. the relationship <laughs> with the client through the translator. Yep. Um, and so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a, a, about that uh, uh, later. But I just want you to be mindful that when you're using translation services and it's a person, that there are tools that is there for you to establish rapport with your client. So making make sure that you're present, that you're making eye contact, that when you're hearing the translation, you're nodding and you're saying yes, right? Uh, but yeah, Google Translate for right now is your best friend. And get, get immersed as much as you can. You know, Go to YouTube and you know, like that episode of Friends that they're all sitting watching a telenovela and they're like, push her down the stairs! Push her, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but start start watching things in YouTube in Spanish and, and if they have subtitles, turn on the subtitles and start getting a feeling in your ear for how it sounds like, how do sentences sound like. Uh, if there's something that they said that captured your ear, be a student of the language, write things down, mm. okay? Um, and then if if you have doubts always reach out i'm sure that there's always somebody who knows somebody who's a spanish speaker uh, that would be more than happy i assure you to help you be more successful
8: So I think um, this will tie in really nicely. So right now, um, we are offering a six week course on music for wellness. And so I'll actually go through a couple of the things that we'll be covering. Um, But this is like my baby, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Like this is an opportunity for me to share like how music is so powerful and impactful and what I want people to walk away with after they go through this course is to have like real life applications where you can actually utilize your music and a better understanding of your relationship with your music and I think that that's so important because when we understand a little more in depth how we relate to our music then we can actually start using music more mindfully Mm -hmm. and consciously in a purposeful way so so this is a six-week course and we actually uh, go over four different ways that we can utilize music and um, each week will be a different way and we will discuss like why this is important um, and how we can utilize it and there'll be a time where we all get together and we actually go through the process of using these tools for ourselves so there's So one of the ways is creating a playlist, and I'm sure you're familiar with the ISO principle Mm -hmm. and how that's utilized in playlist making, but what space do you wanna be at the end of this playlist? And when we can start with using a playlist, like where the music matches where we're at now, or maybe at a time where we're struggling, um, and then where it goes through where you wanna be at the end of the, the playlist. And I think that that's like such a great and easy way to utilize music, right? Like we all, we all understand, you know, where we have certain music that really appeals to us when we're feeling angry or upset and then different music when, that appeals to us more when we're trying to be calm and relaxed. So when we can actually go through that whole process and do that for ourselves. That's just a great way to be more self-uh inner, do some more inner work and be more um what's that word? Reflective. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um and also I think listening to music mindfully, and I know like that's just like yeah, of course, like listen to music mindfully, but like really like listen to your music, right? Like I know I listen to music in the car all the time. There were times where I I realized, you know, the two songs had gone by and I wasn't really listening to them. But when we really, really listen to the music that we're listening to, like asking ourselves, why is this a song that I want to listen to right now? Why is this song stuck in my head? Um, what comes up for me when I'm listening to it? Like, What are some memories? What are some feelings? Um, I actually had started journaling. Um, I, ha- I got out of it this past couple of weeks, but I want to get back into it. Um, when i was listening to different songs that i have a really strong connection to because i really wanted to understand why um and how it was actually affecting me before and after i listened to the songs Mm. and you know when we're so much more mindful about that then we can utilize that to our advantage um and another another way um, i think that people can use at home is doing like a lyric analysis and rewrite for yourself
0: Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you're enjoying this year in review series, feeling perhaps a bit nostalgic, um, and also invigorated, inspired, and excited for 2021. Um, I'm excited to have more awesome conversations like this. I am looking forward to having a greater dialogue with you, the listeners, and as I've said, looking forward to some exciting projects that I've been collaborating on. So sign up for our newsletter so you don't miss anything um, regarding that you don't miss any of that news. Also follow us on social media. We are at Music Therapy Chronicles. Please consider... Becoming a part of our Facebook group. And also, please consider becoming a patron on patreoncom music therapy chronicles. Patrons have the exclusive opportunity to ask guest questions. So, if there's someone you want to have on the show in 2021, you can let me know by shooting me an email to hello at music And then you can become a patron and ask them all your questions. All right. I hope you have a wonderful rest of 2020 and a beautiful new year.